Well, last week I was in, uh, I was in the car with my, my daughter, Mia, my 10-year-old daughter, Mia. And we were driving along, and unprovoked, Mia asked me, she goes, Dad, have you ever wanted or wished you could go back in time and warn yourself of something? My dad ears perked up. I said, Mia, why are you asking me this? <laughs> and after a little bit, she, it, it came out. Now, thankfully, uh, it, wasn't, it didn't end up being anything major, at least not for me, but for her, it was. She had chosen to let someone into something personal, and it didn't end well, and she regretted the decision that she had made. Friends, do you ever wish you could go back in time and warn yourself of something? I know I have, and I think we all would, because we understand the power of our choices. Our choices have implications, and we know those choices. And so I think we all, in one time or another, if we think back on our lives, we go, yeah, I wish I could have gone back in time and warned myself of something or other. And yet I'm also struck by the power of the forces that are outside of my control. We see the power of our choices, the things that are in our control, and yet there are also many, many things that are powers that go beyond our control. While I was in seminary, we lived, my wife and I, we lived in Boston, and I was a youth pastor of a church there. And over time, I was offered a campus pastor role there, uh, but I turned it down, I declined, because I was coming back to Rochester to plan a church. About five years later, as I was in transition again, I actually gave that church a call again. I called the pastor up that I knew. I said, hey, um, you got anything for me now? <laughs> and he said, oh, man, we'd love to have you back, but there's, just, there's no positions available. And so I said, okay. And you know, we, we, we small talked for a few minutes, and we wished each other well, and we hung up the phone. It was about at that time that I began to learn more about Randall Church, And over the next few months, I learned more about Randall Church and had meetings, met with the elders and things, and after a few months, accepted a position uh, to come here, my wife and kids and I, to come here to Randall Church. Less than a week later, I get a call back from that pastor who says, hey, our campus pastor just resigned. Are you still interested in a job? And I was struck after hanging, I I declined, here I am. (laughs) But I was struck with just the timing of it all. That had that campus pastor, had that other person resigned even a month earlier, maybe even a few weeks earlier, the Long family very well might be in Boston right now, deep in Patriots country. (laughs) Praise the Lord. God's divine providence. But that was just it. That seemingly like weeks later, just a few weeks off, and the trajectory of the Long family's life could have been vastly different. And so I recognize that there is power in our choices. We all wish we could go back and warn ourselves of something that a decision or choice we had made. And yet also there is this other underlying seemingly force that directs our lives that we have no control over at all. Is life a series of independent choices or a collection of forces beyond our control? The book of Esther takes a stab at answering that question. 
is life a series of choices, independent choices, or a collection of forces beyond our control? Now, Esther falls into the category, like I said, of Old Testament narrative. And to read Old Testament narrative well, one of the things we need to recognize is that there are different layers going on in most Old Testament texts. The first layer is like that explicit, explicit layer. We're talking about the, act, the basic foundations of the story. You know, the characters, the setting, the backdrop, the plot, the things that we read and we know. That's the, sort of that explicit layer. But then there are implicit layers underneath. Things that are in the story but aren't stated in so many words. There's a thing that's happening, and then there are the things that are happening underneath the surface. And to read Old Testament narrative well is to understand that explicit layer, to know what the story is doing, and yet looking for the themes and layering underneath the story that helps guide and help us to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. So let's have an overview, because we're starting this series in Esther. So in an overview, let's start with the explicit layer. Let me give you just a general overview, a quick overview of sort of that explicit layer, the story, the thing that's happening. The book of Esther is written during the back end of the Israel exile. The Persian Empire, who we just read about, were the new kids on the block, reigning over 127 kingdoms, including the recently conquered Babylon. So the Jewish people who had originally been taken into exile by the Babylonians are still there now. Now to celebrate his greatness and splendor, the Persian king Xerxes throws an extravagant six-month party. And the text says that the drinking was according to the law. According to the law, they had to drink, and drink a lot. So while obeying this law very liberally, King Xerxes commands his queen, Vashti, to be brought before everyone wearing her crown, likely only her crown. You understand why she refuses. And the king is enraged, and after consulting experts of the law, are convinced to see this not just as a personal insult, but a national crime. Wives everywhere, taking the lead of the queen, surely won't listen to their husbands anymore. They're going to get all uppity and start thinking for themselves. This is a threat to social security. I mean, he's not wrong. It's a joke. And it's written into law, then, that King Vashti shall never again enter the king's presence. Now, once King Xerxes sober up, this is going to be as we continue on in the story, once King Xerxes sobers up, he realizes he's made a mistake. And so he establishes yet another law to bring in maidens from every providence to participate in a beauty contest for the throne. And it just so happens that Esther, a Jewish girl, is chosen to be included. And it just so happens that she finds favor and approval more than any of the others. And it also just so happens that while this is going on, Esther's adopted father, Mordecai, is in the right place at the right time and hears of an assassination attempt against the king. He foils the plot, and the deed is noted in the Book of Records. Meanwhile, an official named Haman goes on a power trip after being named second-in-command to the king. 
He decides that everybody must bow down to him as he walks past, but Mordecai refuses, and he's discovered to be a Jew. In a fit of revenge, Haman accuses the Jews of not following the law and coerces the king to establish yet another law to wipe out all the Jews. Upon hearing this, Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes and stands outside the king's court. And Esther happens to see Mordecai and inquires about why he's dressed that way. He tells Esther the bad news and persuades her to go to the king as a last-ditch effort to save their people. But outside of the king's mercy, the law for entering the presence of the king would be death. And yet, he remarks, who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Somehow, some way, things have been orchestrated for you to be in this spot, in this place, at this moment. Esther goes before the king and invites him and Haman to two banquets. She's no fool. The fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach and a little wine. Now, between the two banquets, Haman again notices Mordecai not bowing down to him. Despite Haman believing that these banquet invitations are the height of his success, he can't get over this one guy. So he sets up a pole 75 feet high and heads back to the king to request Mordecai be impaled on it. That same night, King Xerxes just happens to be having trouble sleeping. And so he just happens to be reading a book of the records and just happens to open up to the page that describes Mordecai thwarting that assassination plot. When the king discovers that Mordecai was never rewarded, he asks, who in the court? Who is in the court right now? And it just so happens that Haman's there waiting to ask the king to kill the very person that he wants to honor. Haman realizes this and plays it off a little bit. And so the king asks him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Haman, thinking that the king is talking about himself, Haman suggests a parade of honor. And then when the man is revealed to be Mordecai, Haman must parade him around the city in triumphal display, which kills Haman. Haman realizes his schemes are unraveling, but is then quickly escorted to that second banquet. There, Esther exposes Haman as the one trying to kill her, Mordecai, and all their people. And in a twist of fate, Haman is then impaled on the same pole meant for Mordecai. And then a final law was established, allowing the Jewish people to fight and plunder anyone who meant them harm. There's more to it than that, but that's the general gist. You got it all? Don't worry, we're going to take all fall to go through it a little slower than that. But that's the implicit, that's the quick version, that's the implicit uh, or the explicit layer. That's the layer of just the story, the general run, what's happening, the plot, the twists, the settings, the characters, everything that's going on. The question is, are there other layers, implicit ones? Or, or maybe to put it another way, is there a harmony, so to speak, that resonates with the melody of the basic plot to give the story depth. If, if you think of it like a song, 
right, the, the, the explicit layer is the layer of the melody, the one that you remember, the one you can hum, the one that you can whistle when it comes on the radio. All the twists and turns and notes and instruments is all of that explicit layer that's going on. But then there is a harmony, a, a background layer that if you listen for it, you will hear it underneath it all. Maybe you've noticed that a lot of time when we do worship here at Randall Church, we uh, use what's called a background pad. And maybe you've noticed it, maybe you haven't, but this is the background pad. So a background pad is one where you hear this. Maybe not. There it is. There it is. Have you ever noticed this? When we start a, a song, we'll, we'll play this kind of this padding underneath. This is called a background pad or a harmonic pad. It's an ambient sound that's played in order to provide a song background, like a bass layer. And so all it is is one note that is droned on and on through the whole song. This note never changes. Now, you will, you'll stop to notice that once the other instruments start to play, you'll lose track of this note. You'll hear the piano, you'll hear the drums, you'll hear the bass, you'll hear all the other instrumentation. But this note never changes. It goes on and on and on. And that's a little bit of like what Esther's doing here. You hear all the notes, you hear all the instruments of Mordecai and Esther and Haman and Xerxes. You hear all the, the plot twists, the settings, all the exciting stuff that's happening. And yet, if you listen carefully enough, there's a drone, there's a harmony, there's a bass layer that provides a foundation to everything else. This, this note brings a band together. It, it keeps all the instruments in tune with it. And so as you read the book of Esther, you're going to hear a pad, a note, a harmony right under the surface. So the question we ask ourselves is, what is that harmony? What is that note? What, what are those layers that are droning and humming and providing a foundation underneath it all. That if we hear it and we catch it, all of a sudden this book starts to get put together. There's a thing that's happening and then there's a thing that's happening underneath. Now the first note that's humming underneath is actually a word. And it's repeated over and over again. As I told the story, can you guess what that word is? Anyone catch it over and over again? Law. Law. Over and over and over again. In Hebrew, it's the word doth, which means law. But it's not the word Torah, which is usually the word used in the Hebrew Bible for law. It's this, it's this uh, unique word. And it's used 19 times in the book of Esther. And it's only used one other time in the entire rest of the Old Testament. 19 times in Esther, and then only used in Ezra, which is the same time period, one other time in Ezra. Every other time, it's right there in the book of Esther, over 
and over again. Law. Then he made this law. Then he created that law. Then he tried to change that law. And then he moved over to this law. Law over and over again. Chapter 1 begins playing this note right out of the chute. It uses it twice in the chapter we read this morning. I mentioned already that King Xerxes at his party, the drinking was according to the law. Now the NIV will read by the king's command, but it is that word, it's that word doth, according to the king's law. Literally this law dictated that there were no limits on the drinking. And this is strange because most laws restrict, right? That's what a law does. It kind of gives borders and boundaries of what you can do. In societies, we have laws to kind of keep things in its proper parameters. And so it's, it's interesting and weird and different that we have a law here that literally removes all the, the boundaries and, and uh, signposts and stops and cautions. It's a law that says, don't have a law. <laughs> it's kind of that weird kind of opposite type of thing. It's actually a law of pleasure, of being uninhibited, uninhibited. It's a law of pleasure. It's a strange type of law. People would t- take notice of that. There's a law that actually says, There's no law. Now, the next time we see the law, it appears in the decision to do away with Vashti. It says in Esther 1.12, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king's anger became furious, and it burned within him. He burned with anger. So I think it's safe to say in this passage that the king was personally, emotionally invested in whatever decision was coming, right? He, this isn't like, some, like someone did something and it was sort of apart from you and, and, and not really connected to you personally. No, no, this was very personal. His queen just embarrassed him before everybody at a party in which he's trying to display his great majesty and, and possessions and glory, Right? So, so his anger burns within him. It's safe to say he's emotionally evolved. And so in a less than rational response is he declares in, chap, in verse 19, let it be written in the laws, there's that word again, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is to never again enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than, the, than she. Man, doesn't that sound petty? <laughs> it's like, not only is it like, I don't want you near me anymore, but I'm also going to replace you with someone better, right? It's like, don't worry, like, you'll, you know, you'll find someone better. That's what the king is saying here. Like, the, he is, he's very personally uh, invested in this law. W- which is interesting. So in one law, at the beginning, it, it's, a, it's a law of pleasure, and then in the second law, it's a law of, per, it's, a pers, it's personal. There's like a personal uh, nature to it. He really sort of overreacts here. And we know that because in the next chapter, what we're going to find is that he wakes up and he's, he actually regrets his, or I think he regrets his decision. You kind of get that tone when you see it. He, he wakes up and he's like, ah, you know what? I, I shouldn't have done that. It says in the text in the, next, uh, in the next chapter that he wakes up and he remembers Vashti. And that phrase usually means remember with kindness, like when the Lord remembers us. He, he remembers her. And he probably woke up and he probably sobered up and went, ah, I, I took that a little far. 
I probably shouldn't do that. But again, in chapter 1, it says that this law can't be repealed. There's nothing he can do about it now. And he regrets the choices he made that he can't get back. He, he, he made a rash decision in the moment. He made, a, he made a, a quick, personal, emotional decision in the heat of it that he now looks back and he regrets. Do you wish you could go back and warn yourself of something you did in the past? He does. And so, like I said, the first law is one of pleasure and the second one is personal. Now, just as a side note, an interesting little nugget, the king makes this law based on the advice of Memucon, which sounds a little bit like Haman. We say Haman right here in western York, Haman or Rochester, but Haman. The Hebrew lettering is actually remarkably close, and when you compare their speeches throughout Esther, it's striking. There are many ancient sources that believe that this is actually Haman in disguise, whispering. Because then all of a sudden in chapter 3, boom, he's like second in command. And we're told that these advisors were the closest to the king. Many ancient sources, and we don't know this to be fact, but many ancient sources believe this to be Haman, the enemy in disguise, right down to the name. And then this theme of law continues throughout the rest of the book. Now, laws at its basic level are simply decisions we make on how we're going to live our lives. That's what a law is, you know, when you bring it down. It's just how are we going to act? How, what, what decision, what choices are we going to make about our lives and what we're going to do? So Ari, Esther is a series of laws that reveal the power of our choices. It reveals the power of our choices. And yet there's a second thematic chord that runs through the book. And it's almost the exact opposite. It's the sense of chance, serendipity, fate, coincidence, irony, stuff that just sort of happens to work out. It just so happens that Esther is chosen for a beauty contest and happens to find favor and approval more than any of the others. Mordecai is in the right place at the right time and just so happens to hear the assassination attempt. It just so happens the king can't sleep the very night that Haman is coming to ask for Mordecai's life. And it just so happens that the book of records is, to be, is read to him and it just so happens that it's on the same page. The enemy Haman seeks to destroy is the one the king seeks to elevate. Haman thinks the banquet invite is a gesture of honor when it really is going to be his downfall. Haman is hung on the very pole that is prepared for Mordecai. It creates this sense of reversal and chaos and being out of control. And that very famous, probably the most famous quote in Esther gets to the heart of that. And who knows? Who knows? But that you have come to a royal position for such a time is this. Who, who knows? There seems to be forces that are working outside of our control that are making this thing happen. And speaking with Esther's servant, Mordecai tells him, uh, told him everything that had happened to him. That's a, actually a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It's kura, which means to befall or happenstance. The thing that happened to happen to happen. So even Mordecai is saying, all this stuff that's going on, it just sort of seems to be happening. It creates this sense of chance that fate has decreed. 
And in fact, at the end of Esther, we're going to find a new holiday is created to commemorate the salvation of the Jews. And they call it Purim, which means lots. So a major chord in this book is the idea that something or someone is pulling the strings and you are simply along for the ride. Friends, is life a series of independent choices or a collection of forces beyond our control? Let's call the band up as we finish up here and answer that question. Over this series, we are going to be looking at a lot of profound details and lessons and nuggets. We're going to look at that explicit story and we're going to find all sorts of gospel truth. We're going to find in that implicit, explicit story all these nuggets and lessons and things to pull apart and these, these gospel moments where we're going, oh, man, that's, that's really good. That's right there in clear view. You can see it. There it is. But then there's a background. Then there's a harmony. All sustained throughout. There's that drone that will come. And if we can hear it and we can see it, it will help us put all the pieces together. It's the truth that our choices do have consequences. We create laws for our life. And just like King Xerxes, these laws have implications. And because we are sinful, the laws of our life are often not beneficial. We choose laws of pleasure and we make things personal. We have an enemy, a hidden Haman, whispering lies to manipulate our decisions. Friends, do you ever wish you could go back in time and warn yourself of something? that we have power in our choices. And yet, there's also this outside force moving and shaping and weaving. A God who is at work even when we can't see him. One of the most notable things about Esther is that God is never mentioned, not even once. It's like the author is saying, in the midst of hard choices, it can feel like a God who is absent, who's not there. But if you look and you listen, we know that he's there directing his will and purpose behind the scenes. The book of Esther invites us to trust God's providence and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God really is there, redeeming the world. It's a beautiful background of harmony that reminds us that our decisions and his direction mysteriously work together. And so for all those answers, all those things, like I wish I'd go back and warn myself of that. We have a God who says, I'll work it out. I'm, I'm redeeming the world. Salvation will come. But you have a choice to make, Esther. You have a choice to make Haman. You have a choice to make Xerxes. And yet I'm moving and weaving 
and shaping. And you won't always see me. My name won't always be mentioned. But I'm there. Humming in the background. Holding everything together. Bringing all the as one. And this is the very mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus becomes human, the supernatural inhibiting the natural, God becoming flesh, God and man coming together as one in the sight of Jesus Christ, who on a cross redeemed us and weaved the final piece of that story, our redemptive story there on a cross. And then a God who invites us to play a role in that story and yet is the great author who writes and redeems it. Friends, welcome to the book of Esther. Let's pray. Lord, there are things that we wish we could get back. There are times we wish we could go back. Lord, we understand the power of our choices. And yet, you are redeeming everything to yourself. And salvation will come because you are the author of this story, even as we have parts, minor parts to play in the midst of it. So Lord, may we weave and be part of this song that you're playing. And may we hear the background, the whispers, not of the hidden enemy, not of the hidden Haman, but the whispers of you directing our path despite our choices. We're within the flow of our choices, holding it all together. We are grateful for you, God, that holds us all together, singing a beautiful harmony in the background. May we hear it. May we love it and may we respond to it. We love you, God. In your name I pray.